0: In this episode, Anthony Rawlinson, CFO at Papier, talks about the importance of building a single source of truth for all data, outlines his principles for how and when to scale your team, and shares the highs and lows of investing heavily in company culture. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Anthony, thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Delighted to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. So Anthony, I'd love to know uh, and hear a bit more about how you ended up where you are today as CFO at Papier. I can see from your background you came, came through audit, then into investment banking and so on, but... What was it that led you to taking on that journey?
1: Well, I suppose it was a bit of a mixture of good luck and I suppose design, yeah. like most good things yeah. in life. I left university and was really keen on finance as a place to be and to learn a sort of valuable skill set, but particularly when it came to the investment banking, to be part of strategy, building businesses, building something real. And I suppose I, d- I did that for what was it, nearly 10 years in various guises. But I knew that that wasn't really what I wanted to do long term. I always wanted to be ultimately business side and be part of that story, whatever it was going to be. In the middle of uh, 2017, my mum actually passed away. And like these large events in your life have a tendency to do it really made me think about what was important to me and what was important to my career. And I came across Papier and Papier was uh, a business that I already knew. Through my wife, she was a, an early doctor and an uh, early customer of the business, and I effectively knew the CEO knew he'd just raised venture capital and pitched myself as a bit of a, a a gun for hire, trying to help him figure out all the things that a young business needs to figure out when it 's just taking professional money and it, effectively over the course of the next year, I worked with him to figure out some fairly basic things like what his gross margin was, how to build an outsourced bookkeeping function and also then figure out what the future looked like in the form of a financial model. So, so I guess in that, I had a great taster for all the things that were to come when eventually, as I did a year later, the CFO role was offered to me in it, and I took it on a full-time basis.
0: So obviously, sorry to hear about your loss at that time, because that must have been an incredibly challenging uh, experience. But can you elaborate a little bit about what was going through your head at that time, as in terms of like, obviously, what precipitated that move? Because... Was it that you just decided that where you were, that you weren't getting I don't know, enough satisfaction, enough purpose from? Or was it that actually you had a very clear idea in mind that you wanted to be part of, say, for example, building something new rather than advising people on what they should build?
1: If you'd asked me that question as I was leaving university, I'd have said, in the end, I want to be part of building something and making something happen. I think in the course of my career, I sort of got um, distracted by a combination of what other people around me were doing, and also, frankly, the, the baubles that hung around investment banking. And I suppose when it comes to what happened, and yeah, I think actually, it took me back to what I really went into all of that for, which was to ultimately be responsible f- for a business, make it success, and ultimately, at the end of it all, be able to say, "Yeah, I did that." I think that's ultimately what motivates a lot of us it's certainly what motivates me so yeah I I suppose precipitated by circumstances but in in some ways going to like long-term preferences and ambitions for myself and what I wanted to achieve
0: even in the process of the decision, you mentioned the the things that are dangled, like these big companies, they often have very favorable terms and benefits and a level of comfort, actually, maybe security or comfort, that can become almost like a, a trap for you professionally. And it can be hard to give up that drug, whereas going into the world of a startup, especially, is... is fun energetic but it's chaotic and it's exceptionally challenging was that your experience when you were moving from the large company with with a lot of comforts to perhaps the more spartan environment of a fast-moving startup
1: yeah, yeah absolutely I, I definitely didn't or if i if i left banking to do less work in a startup i definitely would have been disappointed <laughs> on the other hand the pay was very much as expected so you know, <laughs> um that is what it is yeah it's just different, isn't it? And I think what I wanted at the time and what I absolutely have is autonomy. And that's certainly when I talk to people who are looking to join my team or when I talk to other people who are thinking about leaving that world and what their motivation is, often it boils down to autonomy and this feeling that, yeah, they want to be the person who decides they want to be free to, I suppose, fulfill their potential and uh, and ultimately take a buck stops here type approach to to work. And ultimately, that's what we look for when we're trying to hire members of our team, particularly at the senior level, obviously, but throughout the organization, because you can't join a startup without that. And I think there's a lot of comfort around working for. A large accountancy firm or a large US investment bank that frankly disincentivizes some of that in some ways, because it is a lot more comfortable, uh, at least in my experience. I'm sure others have different experiences.
0: So then when you started at Papier, you I, you, I like the, the phrase, gun for hire. So you were there solving problems and you were bringing expertise, but, but you were very much there probably uh, focused on specific problems, not dissimilar to what a consultant or an advisor would do at that early stage. But there's been a gradual transition as you've become CFO, and I'm sure it's now, you're now an Integral part of the, the leadership team of the company. So, what has that transition been like in your role and, and, and position within Papier?
1: Yeah, so obviously there's a big difference between a consultant and being <laughs> being, being a CFO. I think it, it does again to the point around motivi- motivation. Um, the, the mandate is now look out as far along into the future as you possibly can and try and solve today what needs to happen to deliver that. And that doesn't necessarily lend itself to being a consultant, but also frankly it means that's also implied by the stage of the business at a stage around Series A time. The company at the time was in the process of standing up what I would call proper outsourced bookkeeping in a way that it didn't have before. So I suppose the nature of the challenges have shifted, the resource of the organisation has also increased, uh, and I suppose the n- number of entirely new processes and um, systems and ways of doing things that we need to effectively start from the beginning at uh, have reduced and the number of things that we're optimizing or evolving as the business changes is increasing so I suppose it by just virtue of that I had the luxury of being able to spend more time looking on looking to the future looking at the bigger picture and less time focusing on the here and now because if I'm doing my job right um, we've created a a machine and a system and a team that's capable of delivering it and they can uh, frankly so yeah it's become a lot more holistic and a lot more forward-looking. And as a result, I suppose, challenged me in different ways as I've developed through the role over the last four years as well.
0: And you alluded to the fact that you're clearly burning the midnight oil as you're trying to build the business. Again, very typical of a CFO and very typical of a a CFO at scale up in particular. How do you then, given the the huge demands on your time and responsibilities of a CFO, how do you manage your time and how do you prioritize what you do um, within the company?
1: So someone once mentioned to me, and I'm pretty sure it was Tamora, our our CEO, so I'll give him credit for that, that if you're spending more than 20% of your time on any particular thing, then you need to to, to resource it in a different way. And I think that's actually a pretty good rule of thumb overall for me if I think about how my time has evolved uh, and how I manage my time and my team. I think I divide my day or my working week up into broadly three buckets, if you like, one of which is, making sure the machine ticks over in the way that it needs to. I think that is a really important part of my role, um, uh, whether I like it or not. The second piece is the same is true on the on the business side. So focusing let, partly on the trading side, but also much more on the strategic delivery piece as well. And looking, again, looking at the here and now, what are we doing well and wh- where is it that I suppose there are areas for business improvement? And then the final bucket is obviously The strategy in the future and making sure that i resource my team correctly both the challenges we've got now and the challenges that are coming as it currently stands actually we're dealing with a huge amount of organizational change just because Mm -hmm. of our strategy and the way that we're transforming the business and uh, i suppose that third segment has grown to circa 50 percent of my time which i suppose is telling me that i need to spend more time resourcing that area of my work better so that's the rule of thumb i tend to use you can kind of break down each of those segments in terms of what's taking up the time and how the team is resourced but uh, that works for me at least
0: i like that idea the 20 percent rule it's a a very interesting way of thinking about it because it allows you to be dynamic and it also even just gives you just a heuristic for you to figure out when you're doing too much yourself and then how you could delegate or hire
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. And we're lucky in that hiring is part of our reflex. I suppose larger organizations perhaps don't have that or, or may struggle to have that uh, the flexibility to kind of continually reevaluate and respond to what's happening in terms of team structure and, and team resourcing. And to be honest, it's something that I. I've definitely had to try to learn since I joined here. I mean, I was involved in recruiting before, but not at a team planning level and certainly not at the pace at which it's required here. So yeah, that's all part of the fun.
0: And speaking of recruiting, because that's it's a top uh, priority for, for every leader and especially right now because it's so... Uh, Hot a market for candidates so that the the competition is Mm. intense arguably has always been strong but now it seems to be even stronger and then of course that's amplified by the fact that you're trying to keep your best people and people are reflecting just like you did uh, like many moons ago when you're deciding on whether to leave investment banking many people seem to be going through the same reflections so what's your approach to recruiting now uh, and how are you trying to build up your team
1: well i suppose the first thing that we've done is uh, we've hired a full-time people team which is definitely Mm. beneficial and that from an organizational perspective that's definitely proven a good investment because in the past we've perhaps over relied on recruiters and placement agencies and that we've certainly seen benefits there in terms of not just the pure economics of it because that that can obviously make sense from a financial perspective but also from a differentiation in the market, it makes a big difference if you're telling the story yourself to candidates, even at the top of the funnel, rather than having someone else tell that story for you. So I definitely think having a great people team is fundamental to that. The other side of, uh, of what you're asking, which is, I suppose, retention and staff retention in the way that we measure, and that's really important for us, is, is having specific data and making sure that we're tracking employee satisfaction or otherwise and drivers thereof. And I think that's really helped us a lot in terms of overall staff retention. So our retention is extraordinarily high. And I suppose those are two things that have really uh, helped that hugely. When it comes to where you do need to hire, I suppose we try and think about it as holistically as possible. And yes, people focus on the numbers and the salary and the, the comp and all the benefits. But to be honest, if you're a young person looking for a job, you don't necessarily go to a startup or a scale up for those things. I think you'd need to pay people fairly and offer people something that is competitive on the market for their skills, obviously. But I think for us, our differentiation really comes around culture and the things that we can do, which are not big cost drivers for the business, but really drive a lot of employee satisfaction. So we do small things like a monthly cultural allowance that allows people to spend an amount of money on something that's of interest to them whether it's a book a festival ticket a play ticket something like that and that that goes a long way we think we're very thoughtful about helping people to balance work and life whether it's through Mm -hmm. wellness and mental wellness by offering people support or actually building in defenses against the things that ultimately do i find at least personally derail my own mental well-being so incessant meetings the lack of breathing space, stress and all that stuff. So we have meat-free Wednesdays, we have uh, a wellness hour during the week, just these little things that that actually just do make a difference and, and set the tone culturally. And I think ultimately new candidates do get a sense of that when they speak to people and the energy and the way that people talk about their roles. The kind of the interesting thing to me as well is around diversity. And for us, we have a product category that is our core customer is, is very heavily skewed towards women and women in the ages of 25 to 45. And I suppose when I think about diversity in the organization, it, it is both the fact that we we need to make sure we have a representative workforce that reflects the demographics yeah. of our uh, entire customer base, but but also that skews so heavily towards the people we've already hired before. And I think that's something that we as an organization that are definitely working on as a team and perhaps could do better at it if I'm critical. So, yeah, overall, uh, it's about the way you do things and as, as much as it is mm-hmm. about the Roran and yeah, the salaries, which obviously is an FD, something that's top of mind as well.
0: Of course. And, and a lot of these intangibles that you mentioned, they, they can be so powerful as a way to recruit people. But the reason that, that they are is because it's a reflection of how fun it is, how satisfying it is to work there. So with all of those mm-hmm. things, you've got some brilliant ideas. Like a, I'd never heard of the monthly cultural allowance before. And and there's some brilliant things that clearly a big focus on wellness as well. Is that something that, that um, has only emerged since you've built an in-house people team? Or is that actually driven by a whole host of people across the business? outside of the people team
1: so the cultural allowance has been around i think ever since i i was even consulting but i think that's indicative of the mindset and management team i think you know we do try and almost deliberately go beyond our remit when it comes to these things and try and challenge ourselves i mean i I don't know about interest in the conversations you've had previously around what happened with covid and how you maintain team engagement and motivation particularly in a world where people are just talking to computers it's not humans there was a certain amount of uh, energy and creativity that just came out of that as people tried to figure out how you could possibly maintain employee engagement in such sort of adverse circumstances. And I think, as a reflex, we definitely developed that, enjoyed that, and have continued to try and experiment as a team with things. I'd say that experimentation can be a bit of a blessing and a curse, can't it? Um, you you can become a bit hyperactive and try and you know, launch too many trials, and then you know you have to be a bit cautious. I think if anything, we've been a bit bit over creative at times. But I think I think as we've reverted back to hybrid ways of working, things have kind of normalized. We found a little bit of our kind of natural level in terms of hybrid work, how we give people the right balance uh, and so on.
0: Touching on that topic, because of course it's one that's come up time and time again, certainly during the pandemic and then even now as hybrid work becomes a normality for for so many organizations, what of all the many things that you tried, what did you find were really successful and you continued and which ones just didn't quite work out? Well,
1: we have this thing called eat like the Italians, which I think <laughs> is a, maybe a bit like the gusto way of doing things. At home. Um, yeah, it, Having listened to the previous episode. So yeah, take an hour for lunch and don't do it at your laptop. And that is something that I've been rigorous in blocking out in my calendar and is, at least in my experience, generally observed and definitely agree that, that Helpful to general sanity and happiness. I think, as I mentioned, we have a meat-free Wednesday, and that's M-W-E-T, not M-E-A-T. Although I do think we should possibly try the latter as well. <laughs> and that's, I suppose, much more ambitious in its scope. It's blocking mm-hmm. out an entire day not having any meetings, and I certainly find that that's not not the case. But I, I think, it if nothing else. Uh, you, you set the expectation for the rest of the organization, which is if you can avoid it, it does lead to less traffic and does lead to a different in that difference in attitude and and frankly a bit more politeness around how other people manage your calendar, and that can only be a good thing. And from a team perspective, I did various I, in in the real midst of the lockdowns, I did various over creative things like I did a Team Spotify playlist, which we all tried to curate on a weekly basis, which I think frankly my team was a bit thought it was a bit weird maybe a bit, <laughs> bit like listening to the radio with their dad or something like that so um, that was perhaps less successful but anyway you live
0: in that <laughs> so i'm racking my brains eat like the italians i like that exactly we in soldo half of our company is based in italy so we have a huge engineering team in rome and we have a commercial team in milan as well and our founders and ceo is, a, is an italian so i'm racking my brains trying to think of all the meetings that i might have been on where people have been eating and there's been lots but i think I don't. I can't think of a time that an Italian has done that. So maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah. you've just uncovered a, a like a, something with a, a bias within my mind that, that the Italians are doing it right, and then it's everyone else in the company that's doing it wrong.
1: I think we could all learn from that, frankly.
0: Yeah, time away from that. I I, I agree, like that away from the screen. But The other thing you touched on as well is that how to minimize meetings, and you have the meeting-free Wednesday, of course, as well. But the, that point about how to connect and collaborate really effectively, but then do so efficiently? I'm sure that must be like a, a, an, an evergreen theme that you have both within your com- your team and also the company. How have you found like the best way to tackle that problem about like close collaboration, but giving people the space to do some type of deep work?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, definitely that's partly the intention behind the the Meet Free Wednesdays. I mean, I think that we've, particularly as relates to managing team meetings and cross-functional collaboration. We've gone around the houses there. So we started off with, and this is when I first joined them when the company was relatively small. We would try and review monthly trading as a cross-functional team and having everyone producing their own materials and doing this three hour long meeting where we'd do spotlights and it became this huge overhead. And that's what it was to, to people's day jobs. And frankly, one that didn't really add much value. Uh, because well the, the reasons that obvious any three-hour meeting is by definition inefficient so where we've ended up is we've got a principle of 45-minute meetings i think that i think amazon is written in a lot of the best practices that come out of silicon valley or or seattle or wh- whichever uh, west coast America's area you want to pick but so so that kind of principle of 45-minute meetings the pizza principle of, of meetings and and, and all those are those are kind of effective, and that that's part of when we talk to people about onboarding and ways of working. Certainly, we try and uh, ingrain that into people's minds because that is, you know, we have people joining from all sorts of different companies, and some people love three-hour meetings, and but but for us, it kind of doesn't work that way. I I also think we've experimented a little bit around formats so meeting materials. What's the right materials for a meeting? And we went through some various arbitrary rules, like. The Again, the written paper, the way everyone sits down and reads and then has a discussion at the end of that reading time and that forms the format of the meeting. I, I think for me, actually, the way I like to do things is, is just simply trying to encourage best practice, having an agenda, trying to be respectful of people's time, not trying to be too um, prescriptive about how people actually do things because mm-hmm. ultimately no single way really works the best and you kind of got to find... Uh, your level but certainly the need to be in this meeting versus wants to be in this meeting or might be convenient to be in this meeting as a kind of again a reflex something that's encouraged i think certainly um, at least in the meetings that i find myself in has been overall beneficial
0: It's one of those questions where there's no perfect answer. Nobody has the solution. Right. But what, what we do have is a ton of examples of where it's not going well. And it's yeah. a constant <laughs> debate, like, like alignment versus efficiency is like, yeah, you can get 30 people in a meeting and they'll technically listen to someone or maybe be aligned on information. But actually, you're just wasting countless amounts of time yeah. uh, in the process.
1: I mean, on that point, I think, I, I guess, one area that we have as a team taken ownership and that has helped is around the trading meetings. It's a very specific example, I think, something that particularly our e commerce peers and probably um, most businesses have. And I think having a central source of truth for data in the form of BI platform, having a central team that's responsible for standing reporting, clearly, that's a sort of baseline of competence that finance team can play in an organization. But actually, if you have BI and a BI platform that's uh, performant, you, you do then also create that baseline across the organization for any meeting. So there is there's much less of that. Oh, is that number right? Or can I just check that? So I suppose it does also come down to not just meeting practices or data across the entire organization and how you set mm. the organization up for success. So you can take that kind of what do we know out of the equation and means that meetings can focus a little bit more on insight and action as they should do.
0: And this is uh, unquestionably a recurring theme. And and certainly for CFOs, when they think about their team, is that there's this never-ending journey to try and liberate the team so that they've got more time to focus on analysis that can generate insights, that can generate meaningful decisions about the future. I I like the way you described it as being able to see into the future as far as possible and then do something today to influence that. When you're thinking about that idea of the use of technology and freeing your team up to be able to partner with the rest of the business. How, how have you been approaching that? You mentioned BI platform. Are there other tools, technologies that you rely on as a team in a business to, to try and deliver those insights?
1: As a team, I look after both finance, which is all the conventional stuff that you typically talk to people about, but also data as a whole within mm-hmm. Papier. Mm-hmm. So I have a data director who reports into me, and, and he in turn manages BI. Customer insight, which is effectively qualitative data around our customers um, and delivering customer centric insights and then data science as well. So um, effectively making sure that we're using data in a rigorous and scientific way. I think that as an overall construct works incredibly well. And it means that data can be when when we set up the BI uh, platform and when we curated the content from the start, meant that what we were delivering and what we were setting up there was really focused on the commercial through the lens of the financial and financials, obviously, like 80% in our case of the data that we use on a day-to-day basis. So I think that's, that's a huge part of it. When it comes to other business process automation, actually, to be totally candid with you, we're a little bit behind where we should be. So... We too long focused on continue to use an outdated ledger system that hadn't matched the overall state of the business. And, and we're currently investing in, in transitioning towards, I suppose, a, a system which we can automate to a much greater degree and, and automate core financial processes. So I, I suppose on that front, I'm not the person to speak to because I'm I I'm yet through the process on basically most of those fronts. But what you do have in me is someone who's a firm believer in that end state, having seen the in the end goal, I suppose, in the form of Looker and, and what it does for the organization overall.
0: But I guess that to your point, even though you're going through the process right now, you're pretty clear on really where you would like to get to
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and I think often there's a discussion around ROI and how do you attribute, you know, the incremental mm-hmm. investment that I'm putting into this new ERP system. Um, what is the incrementality of that? You know, all this cost that we're putting into the implementation, all these additional uh, effectively overheads I'm chucking off the business. And I think the best advocate for something like that is just results. And the, the degree to which having a performant BI infrastructure has benefited the overall organization is the best advocate for investment in general systems and technology and so on. It, if I had to convince anyone, then I'm sure I'd be able to point to that and do that.
0: I'm sure CFO, you would have the the ability to sway people when it comes to the odd business case.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, there is a bit of that. But but also you add a system, you don't have to add 10 headcount all the complexity around redefining business, manual business processes as opposed to automated ones. I think hopefully we're catching Papier at the right time, but but ask me in
0: 24 months. We'll see where we've got to by that point. And my experience, so I, uh, many moons ago, worked in Accenture and, and came across mm. various big technology deployments. And nine times out of 10, of course, they're backed by a business case. And they're, these are super enterprise companies. But they're all, the business cases are almost always based on cost reduction. You know, like you can mm. automate something out and reduction in, in FTEs and the number of people, very crude enterprise way of doing it. But what's interesting, I think is, maybe certainly within tech and certainly within scale-ups is that it's actually more about time than it is about money. And what like some previous guests have even said that really the business case for them is, can we move faster? Will this allow us to move faster? Uh, Even with the same people, let alone any change in team. And I think that that's a really powerful difference in the way you view investments.
1: Absolutely. And also not just can we do it faster, but can we do it at all? In in our case, as a a new commerce business that's looking at, Sales channels and different ways of doing things. You know, certain systems are just required in order to do that. So, in other cases, it can just be a you know a hard enabler as opposed to a enabler of going faster. Okay. So that's an even easier case for signing off the budget to myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I can imagine. And I find it interesting that you're responsible for data. Some of our guests previously, the CFOs have been responsible for that. And, and I'd love to know, how do you then with those teams, the BI team, the Insight team, but particularly the BI and data science, how do those teams work in parallel or in collaboration with fp Because both of them are presumably trying to be partners to the business and trying to give insights to the people who own but different parts of the business so they can make decisions on it. And they're definitely complementary, but sometimes you find those teams are wrapped together. Sometimes you find them completely separate. How, how do you work that?
1: The data team in general operates very much as a service to the rest of the organization. So, and in that sense, FPNA is very much a client, I suppose, of yes. BI in particular. And uh, I, I suppose I would characterize FBNA as operating in very much the same way. Actually, they take responsibility for overall forward-looking data within the organization and helping us to understand business drivers overall for the organization. Mm-hmm. But it's actually a very interesting and topical question that I'm currently trying to address, which is the viability of that business model is, mm-hmm. is, is coming under strain because the business is growing in complexity. We have more and more functions with more and more demands on particularly fp resource and finance resource. And I suppose I'm in the process of, uh, is getting a change in the way that that team is structured so that we adopt a much more of a kind of hybrid decentralized type model where you have effectively some people who are not responsible for core company wide activities but are have time and resource allocated towards specific functional needs. That's certainly on the FPNA side. When it comes to data, I think the current model actually works extremely well and I. I think there's less of a case for departing from that. Whereas in, in, in finance, there's a stronger case for that. But I don't know that there's any hard and fast rule that you can infer from that other than things change and you have to respond to them.
0: And it sounds like then, in which case, you're trying to become even closer to the different parts of the business and become, and almost like for lack of a better phrase, but like double down on on the way that FPNA partners with the business and acts as a business partner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We understand the role. That, that it plays as a function across the team know that there is fundamental I suppose time skills and information that is required to do that job well so far as a scrappy scale up lots of people have been required to do that themselves and you know do so effectively in their own time not quite but certainly when it comes to our budgeting I think for the rest of the team would say it is often in their own time and yeah that's fine when you're uh, bootstrapping and trying to make ends meet. But actually, those teams are much better focused on execution within their core areas of capability. And I think it's got to the point where we do need to make that investment as a company, knowing that it will come back to us in spades um, because of the benefits in terms of hopefully accuracy as well as time efficiency the uh, part of our functional uh, leaders.
0: As we draw the interview to a close... For anyone that's listening and they want to emulate you as a CFO, what advice would you have for them so that they could be prepared for that and and be successful when the time comes?
1: I I would sort of split it into a few elements, one of which is almost like how do I identify the opportunity, (laughs) if you like? And for me, I suppose, the thing that really sold me on the opportunity that was in front of me when I was offered the role at Papier was um You know the market, the team, the investors, all of, all of that stuff. But particularly the chemistry with the organisation, the management team. I think in it, mm-hmm. that's that's obvious in any role that you're looking for. But it's no different at a senior level. And that personal chemistry, particularly with the CEO, who's you know become a good friend over time, is really fundamental. I, I do also think that alignment to mission and vision is also fundamental. Yeah. You can't yeah. lean and effectively dedicate your life to something that is not something you believe in. And I'm a paper person, I write things down, I read books, I try not to use my phone whenever I possibly can. And all of those things resonate with the overall mission. So so I guess it, it is a huge investment of your career. And and, and and I suppose being on that journey with those two characters is, is, is basically where you have to start. I think if you're trying to make a transition, and that's what I did effectively from advisor to management, I, I definitely think there's a bit of a case of be careful what you wish for. You know, lots of people who are advisors say that they want to go and walk the road of being a principal and you know being part of a journey. and it It's hard and you have to really believe it and you have to live it and you have to be ready for the fact that it's as much work, if not more, um, but it's a different kind of work. Mm. It's satisfaction and autonomy, the things that if that's what you're looking for, they, they come to you in spades. And I think when it comes to actually that transition, it's really transition that I can talk to because I'm the only one that I've done. But from advisor to principal, I, I do think there's lots of stuff you have to learn. You have to be open minded. You have to be generalist. You have to be humble, particularly interpersonally, and you have to be flexible in your approach because you go from a world where you're effectively operating with a lot of very similar people. To be honest, to a world where you know the world is more diverse, and different skill sets. Not everyone loves numbers. Not everyone speaks the same language as you. And, and you do really have to affect your approach in in ways that you haven't ever before. But I also think confidence in what you've learned is is key as well. That kind of blue chip training that you do get, particularly within the accounting firms, but also any advisory firm, is it does differentiate you in ways that you're not really conscious of at the point where you're thinking about other alternatives. And the final thing uh, you asked for advice, so I'm going to keep going. <laughs> that I at least found beneficial from my my experience was the ability to try before I try before you buy. In my case, partly because of personal circumstances, as we've covered, um, I took effectively took time out to experiment with something else, and that proved to be uh, a good option. And here I am today. So clearly, it's easy for me to say, but if you can do a bit something where it is a bit more flexible, you do kind of experiment with a few different ways of working in different formats, in a few different roles, then that can only be beneficial. I don't know if that answers the question, Ross, but it's a few different answers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. It, it, it very much does. And and I think that what you're touching on there as well is not just how to be successful in the role, but how to be happy and yeah. satisfied in the role. Because as you mentioned it, be careful what you wish for. Very often when I ask that question, it, it, it assumes that the that it's all sunshine and happiness in the role of a CFO. But of course, there are uh, a lot of pressures. And unless you're, to your point, like aligned to the, the purpose of what you're trying to do, you're investing a lot of your life in that. So you have to be careful for what you wish for. So I, I think it's great advice.
1: I think the only point I would emphasize a bit more is perhaps the point around humility as well, because you do go from a certain world where you're used to being working with certain types of companies, large companies, certain profile CEOs and CFOs. And I guess going into a small company, there can be uh, a sense where you you feel like you know it all. And when it comes to the uh, the operational experience that I have, yes, you've got some strengths and those are the reasons that you've been hired. But also having the humility to take it back to basics and say, look, please just educate me. I don't, you know, you need that fundamental base of knowledge and almost trying to bluff your way through it is very dangerous. So a healthy dose of humility is um, something that's required and perhaps maybe something that doesn't come naturally to investment bankers. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but, but I think that increasingly it, it seems to come naturally to many CFOs and I don't know whether it's the bias of the people that we've had on the show or otherwise, but it so often comes through in who they are, but beyond that it comes through in the advice they give to others the importance of empathy and humility so yeah, it, it's certainly not exclusive to to your experience So Anthony, thank you so much for joining us taking the time uh, to be on the podcast today
1: It's been wonderful, great fun
0: talking to you Russ Thank you One last thing, we want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.